Martial Arts World Radio is the official radio show and podcast of The Factory Martial Arts Boxing and Fitness at 450 Matheson Boulevard East, Unit 44, Mississauga, Ontario. Check us out at www.factorygrindgym.com. This is UFC fighter Jason Sago. You are now listening to Martial Arts World Radio with Joseph Clark. Welcome to Martial Arts World Radio. I'm your host, Joseph Clark. Each episode, we speak to stars of the UFC, Bellator, celebrity martial artists, world champion boxers, and legends and icons of classical martial arts. Over the next hour, we will be speaking with UFC fighter Elias Theodorou, and a man who is a martial artist, ex-con, and former mob enforcer turned author, interventionist, and man of God. Leonard Wayne. This week's inspirational quote is from Muhammad Ali and goes as follows. They have to have the will and the skill, but the will must be stronger than the skill. Muhammad Ali, 1942 to 2016. Here's world champion and cinema star Cynthia Rothrock on The Warrior's Spirit. I, when I teach seminars, I sort of started gearing my seminars toward the warrior spirit. And what the warrior spirit is, is whenever you're training, put 100% effort into it. Uh, you know, you don't work out longer than an hour, but like I see people like doing kicks and they're doing them half speed or doing self-defense movements that are really slow. And I try to teach them, look at this is the way you got to uh, train. This is what you got to feel inside. And then you're going to progress and be a better martial artist. So I guess my advice is when you're there, put 100% into your workout and, you know, don't slack off. You're only there for a short time and uh, you'll get better, you'll get stronger, you'll get faster, you'll get a better workout, you know, and then you'll strive to becoming the best you can be. Our first interview for this episode is brought to you by the Final Destination for Martial Arts and MMA Expo taking place January 27th to 29th at the Tropicana Casino Hotel in Atlantic City. Elias Theodorou is a middleweight division fighter in the UFC and the winner of the Ultimate Fighter Nations Canada versus Australia. Here is a never-aired-before final segment from my interview with Elias the Spartan Theodorou. Where do you see yourself as a fighter in the next three years? Just growing. Uh, I'm so, like... Honestly, I'm a huge believer that knowledge is power, and with this sport, you never learn. You never stop learning, rather. Because the day you think you know everything is the day you get your, kick, your, your butt kicked on national TV. So I'm honestly just going to stay hungry and just put my head into what I love, mixed martial arts. And I'm going to grow, and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to rinse and repeat. You mentioned that you had done some stunt work. Have you had any movie, television, or book offers? Um, I've actually had... Um, I've been on... The biggest roles were the listener played um, on the side of that was uh, like I mentioned uh, the Comedy Network Max game. I'm also on the uh, soon to be out uh, Netflix movie with it, which is a part of Lionsgate. It's called the Number One Contender. Oh, very. And good. I've actually pa- I've actually passed up on a couple of roles here and there. I had the opportunity to be in Godzilla and RoboCop, but I had a fight coming up, so that is priority. Where do you draw your inspiration from? Honestly, my desire to stay hungry and just to learn. There's so much to learn, and I love this lifestyle. Just going all around the world now and just training. I get to train with some of the world's best, and at this point, they look at me as a peer. So that's the most amazing thing that's happened right now. And I honestly just draw inspiration on what potential is. And athletics potential is actually a bad thing because it means you're not using it, but and the idea of what could potentially happen, I'm so excited to just work hard at it. Before mixed martial arts, where did you direct this determination and this spirit? Um, so a long time in high school, I was skateboarding. If you saw the 13-year-old Elias, I would be with a skateboard with me right when I wake up. Um, after that, there was a little bit of a void. I didn't really know where to go. Um, basically, I started doing 
uh, my my work at uh, university, and I just thought maybe the office job was next. I I'm, I fancy myself a little bit creative. I can draw, I can paint, I can do a little bit in between, and uh, just getting creative uh, that was my new outlet. And I kind of translated in mixed martial arts because you can paint if you if the right canvas comes along, you can paint anything on it. And where did you go to school? I went to uh, Guelph Humber. Um, I was at the um, the uh, lecture campus, and I had my degree in creative advertising. Do you ever see yourself pursuing that as a career? Well, I'd like to think that I, I advertise the brand that is myself, and that's what I've been working on for the last five years. This actually connects the dots for me because uh, just doing my research for the interview tonight, obviously going the web, as I mentioned, you have an incredible web presence, and it's very entertaining seeing the descriptions and things like that. And I'm always <laughs> curious how much of this came out of your camp versus is being done by other third parties. And, and so I'm actually really quite impressed with the web presence that you have and, uh, and how much coverage you've gotten. Um, honestly, the, this is all my brainchild. Um, at this point, now everything's starting to get um, delegated elsewhere. I control my Twitter. I control my Instagram. Um, but more and more different people will have the ability to basically film me being me. And it's still me. It's still my thought process and whatnot. But I have other people that have better grammar and better <laughs> punctuation maybe putting together. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it comes to your mixed martial arts career, I mean, you know, you're a good-looking guy. You're very marketable, you know, same way as, as uh, some of the other fighters like GSP. Uh, how far are you prepared to go and what sacrifices are you prepared to make to uh, advance in this sport? I'd say I'm making sacrifices every day. Um, I could be on a patio right now with my friends having a beer. Instead, I just uh, did two training sessions and collectively three and a half hours of training today. And I'm going to do that tomorrow. And I'm going to do that for the next six, seven weeks until my next fight. Then i got a month to have some fun. But with that being said, I make sacrifices every day. Um, if you're referring to my, my parents, I think this is nothing but a vessel. And I honestly love what I do when uh, nothing comes in the way. Um, with, that, with that also being said, if looks are kill, they probably will. And they have been so far. <laughs> so in terms of cauliflower ears and broken noses and uh, scars and whatnot, you're, you're prepared to uh, make those sacrifices if they have to occur. Well, actually, funny story, because like, I don't have cauliflower ears. Um, I have a little bit here and there. Like, obviously, it happens, right? But um, that's street wrestling. I'm not a wrestler. I'm a mixed martial artist. So there's different ways. I use my forehead. It's the strongest thing on your body. When cauliflower happens, it's actually evolution. It's you breaking cartilage and informing to be harder so it doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. I just go, I just drive head first into it. <laughs> <laughs> and then with the broken nose, just move out of the way. You don't get hit, you don't get broken. I've only been hit four or five times, flush. What does that feel like with those, uh, with those MMA gloves? I mean, I've trained with those gloves. I've never been hit with those gloves. Um, it's, it's not a fun feeling, so that's why I avoid it at all costs. But, um, Honestly, it's something that I prepare for every single day. And just, again, just get out of the way. <laughs> what has your MMA career taught you about overcoming adversity? Just being headstrong. Like, wanting it more. Like, that's one of the things, like, me and my coaches, like, kind of, like, evolved into. It's just the idea of wanting it more. No means no. Every time someone tries to shoot at me, every time someone wants to hit me in the head, I say, no, I do what I want to do. It's less about them, it's more about me. If I'm doing what I need to do, then they can't do what they need to do. And this entire journey to date, what has it taught you about yourself? That anything's possible. Um, this is just nothing more than a dream about four or five years ago. And uh, now I'm living that dream wide awake. Did you always have a backup plan? <laughs> no. I just kind of went uh, for the gusto and just kind of threw the marbles and let the, let the chips lie where they may. Um, like, we alluded to the fact that I won a, with my fight in the finale, I won a contract with the UFC. It's a, it's a six-figure contract, and so basically the last three years of hard work was for the next year of security. Um, I have that, and now I'm going to work really hard to get the next five years of my life secured. And that's the thing. It's always working to tomorrow. I'm working for tomorrow. I've got a lot of I accomplished today, but tomorrow's even more important. 
Elias, would you share with us, you've alluded uh, already about your training regimen, but would you share with us these days as you're preparing for your next fight, what does that look like? What's a typical day of training for you? Uh, on average, it depends on the location. Uh, maybe the hour kind of differs, but anywhere from 11 to 12, I'm at some type of gym, either strength and conditioning, wrestling, uh, and then I'm there for the next two hours, give or take. I eat because fueling up is the most important thing, and luckily, like I said before, I have a great sponsor of Fuel Foods and all the vitamins and whatnot, and then naps. Naps are huge in my daily life. Um, Right after training, I try to get home as quick as possible. It might take an hour. It might take 30 minutes, whatever the case. And then I take a quick nap, and then I jump right back into it. And you're looking at anywhere between, um, well, altogether, it's anywhere between three to five hours of training between the two sessions. And I do that 11 times a week. So two training sessions, five times a week, and then Saturdays, it is fine. Elias, our wrap-up question for the evening, and it's gone by way too fast and really enjoyed this, but advice for our listeners regarding pursuing their dreams? Just go for it. You never know if you don't try. The, the answer is always no if you never ask. And I don't know, you can only, you'll, you'll only look up back at the, the things that you miss. Oh, sorry, going into that aspect of missing and swinging and whatnot. Um, Babe Ruth had a really good one. They only remember your home runs. They never remember your strikeouts. So just keep on going for it, and eventually it'll happen. If not, at least you can say you tried. Hey, Elias, thanks so much for sharing this evening and taking the time, and congrats on an incredible accomplishment to date, and I'm sure your biggest victories are still ahead of you, and I wish you continued success. Thank you ever so much. I truly appreciate that, and honestly, this has been a blast, and I'd love to chat again. Um, Thank you so much for just listening and having a conversation with me. We would love to have you back again, and all the best. Thank you so much. This has been an interview with UFC fighter Elias the Spartan Theodoru. Hi, this is Olympic bronze medalist in judo, Marty Malloy, and you're listening to Martial Arts World Radio. For those of you listening to Martial Arts World Radio while on your phones, tablets, or laptops, be sure to check out www.bobwallworldblackbelt.com. That's bobwallworldblackbelt.com, the world's foremost martial arts online community. Our second interview for this episode is brought to you by London Sports, custom martial arts apparel at factory prices. Click on the London Sports advertisement at mawradio.com for more info. Leonard Wayne is the author of the book, Higher and Higher. He is a Hall of Fame martial artist with black belts in multiple styles. He was a stuntman in Hollywood and a former leg breaker for the Teamsters. He has participated in hundreds, and that is no exaggeration, hundreds of street fights and bar fights. He is also an ex-con, having served a prison term for securities fraud. But these are shades of his former self. Leonard is a reformed, rediscovered, and enlightened man of God who provides interventions and support for alcoholics and addicts, and he is as dedicated as ever to his martial arts training, to charity, to goodwill, and service to others. If you listen to any talk radio interview this year, let it be this one. Leonard, welcome to Martial Arts World Radio, and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Brother Joseph. My pleasure. Leonard, can we begin with you walking us through your martial arts background and credentials? It'd be my pleasure. Uh, First and foremost, I consider myself to be old school. I actually started in 1964, and back then things were quite a bit different. Obviously, most of us know there were no pads, so it was more of a hands-on, if you will, I actually enjoyed that, and to this day feel that pads hindered my performance somewhat, but it is what it is. Uh, I was blessed to again find myself in 1964 at a tournament in Long Beach, California, referred to as the International by the famous Ed Parker, and I'm with my cousin Howie, and we're both wearing our brand-new white geese, And I remember seeing this gentleman come in uh, named uh, Mike Stone, and he had a very uh, unique afro. And I told my cousin Howie, that gentleman right there is someone I admire and I have to meet. So as the Lord has it, I actually went up and introduced myself to him. And Lord and behold, we're still friends today. 
I just had the pleasure two weeks ago of having lunch with Mike. He informed me he was coming in from the Philippines. And I'm sitting there with not only Bob Wall, Mike Stone, Daniel Garcia, uh, Bob White. And I thought to myself, you know, the brotherhood of over 50 years is amazing. And I'd like to make sure that the listeners understand. I feel so sorry for the people today in mixed martial arts that don't know what the brotherhood was and still is and how unique it was. Because back then it was normal to go to one of Bob Wall's four-season tournaments in San Fernando Valley and literally get into major brawls, especially in the bathroom with the Black Federation group. But you'd end up going to have dinner with these people, and they became your lifelong friends. I mean, I remember this day Greg Davis, a fierce fighter from Chicago with a great hooking heel kick. Uh, He tagged me two or three times, and we became the best of friends We actually opened a dojo together in 1977 on Hollywood Boulevard, and we were working with a lot of the celebrities in Hollywood at the time. But for me, it was very important that I not only learned all of the katas, I loved uh, kabutatri weapons, uh, nunchakas to me were fabulous, but I also had a lot of uh, luck, if you will, because of my uh, personality, I was inclined to come to a lot of masters that I admired, and even if they let me sweep the dojo, uh, they would end up teaching me things that they felt were very important that I add to my repertoire. Um, I really do believe, again, the uh, the Macriah was so important for my hand strength. I enjoyed it. I To this day, I don't see it in too many dojos that I still go to to help with testing, And I think it's something that's so important, but it's part of old school. The same with the amount of time that we used to spend in the dojo. I mean, I remember uh, training with the great Joe Lewis and getting a black belt from Joe. It was normal for him to require everyone that was testing to spar at least three rounds with him, learn how to take his power, and most importantly, his humor, because he had lots of humor. And I thought, again, uh, he was, to me, the bad boy. Uh, Chuck Norris, to me, was the good boy. So, of course, being young, I always thought, wow, look at that bad boy. He had such a dynamic presence. Uh, Superfoot, to me, was, again, someone that I, I just worshipped as far as his ability to get the flexibility. I thought, how does he do that? But these guys in my day were the warriors And it's an honor to this day to obviously still have communication and share love. Uh, Obviously, we know Joe's on the other side. Rest in peace. But uh, I think that, again, gives you an idea of my passion. Uh, Master Richard Chung, when I was living in New York, I was honored to not only train with the uh, United States Taekwondo Association, but even uh, my experience uh, in uh, grappling and judo, I just think it's amazing the different people that I would meet, from Joe Jennings. Uh, Joe was phenomenal in uh, Ishan Ru. Uh, the different fighters also were very eager to want to show you their, quote, secrets. So they would show you their ridge hand. They'd show you their one step to the left, to the right, the angles. But it's, to me, so different now, and I hate to say that there aren't a lot of uh, traditionalists out there, but there are if you just search for them. I will say, Leonard, that there are a lot of MMA fighters who I speak to regularly who do have a pedigree and background and an appreciation in classical martial arts. Now, let's talk about your street fight record. How many street fights did you participate in? Oh, my gosh. I wish I could say I remember, but it's too numerous. Uh, Bob Wall was just making that comment that uh, the real street fighters, uh, we obviously had an edge. I mean, Fred Brewster, who's a good friend of mine, used to see me get in bar brawls in Newport Beach, and he always made the comment, it's like, you know, you just go for it. And I said, well, there's no other option. And I know for me, uh, growing up here in Southern California, uh, we had gangs that, uh, again, were not knives, not bats. It was just fisticuffs. And to me, I was the type that uh, I knew how to say enough to provoke you to usually try to throw a blow. 
And then to me, it was a matter of, again, uh, usually a front thrust kick, a ridge hand or a back fist, and then followed up with a side kick coming out. I never understood why people didn't realize the legs are much more um, powerful than the arms. And I've got 18-inch arms, so I've got some pretty strong arms. But the point is your leg is longer and so much more powerful so I became very talented at not only getting a kick into your floating ribs, but I knew how to finish it quickly. Uh, sometimes I'd actually do it without spilling my cocktail. Uh, I also was able to take a punch. I know when I used to spar with the great Ken Norton, I got into boxing when I was in high school. Uh, he used to call me Lenny the Lion, said I had a left hook that would move walls. But I really do believe that people that haven't experienced street fighting, I mean, Chuck Norris, no offense, has never participated in street fighting. Bob Wall to this day still teases him. Uh, Mike Stone has never been in a street fight. I mean, these are people that, no offense, they need the surrounding of referees that are going to, again, uh, come in, break it up, control it, where in street fights, there's no such thing. I mean, I've actually got into brawls with five individuals in a biker bar and successfully was able to uh, take them all out because I didn't hesitate. And of course, Leonard, in a street fight, something that you have to manage, I believe, much more than in an organized fight is the adrenaline dump, managing the fight or flee instinct. Now, tell us about your connection and your operations with the Teamsters. But ironically, in high school, uh, one of my uh, friends, his dad, was connected to the Teamsters, which, for the people who don't know, is the equivalent of the Mafia here on the West Coast. And Jimmy Hoffa and Frank Fitzsimmons and Jackie Presser, they were running the chauffeur limousine and truck driving division here in Carson, California. And one day, uh, Kevin Gary's dad, Skip, saw my talent and asked if I would be interested in working as the sergeant of arms for the Teamsters. And I said, what exactly does that entail? It's like, well, it pays well and you get a jacket. I said, sign me up. So ironically, they had a situation where a company called Checker Cab had went on strike and they offered me $250 for each cab driver I knocked out and removed the microphone from his car. So I had his younger son, Sean Gary, drive me and I took out five cab drivers the first night before dispatch obviously informed them. There's a large guy calling and knocking drivers out, so it, it became known. Uh, later on, they had people that were uh, creating problems at Goodyear Tire they wanted me to go over and talk to them with a pipe uh, in a brown paper bag that was used to bust knees. And I'm now doing things because of my wild side that most of my peers just couldn't even comprehend, but I wouldn't talk about it. Leonard, tragically, your father murdered your mother and then turned the gun on himself. Are you comfortable sharing that story with all of us? It was 1999, and I had become a self-made millionaire working as a securities dealer, a.k.a. stockbroker, and I was so talented at raping and pillaging the innocent on the phone that I was making almost $800,000 a year. So I was 39 years old. I really had hated my dad. My dad, I want to make sure the listeners know, was categorized as a clinical bipolar matic depressant. This is someone that actually has a chemical imbalance, and unless you treat it, you have extreme highs and extreme lows. So again, going back to my youth, this is a guy that would come home. He worked at Ford Motor Company in Pico Rivera, ironically with Ben Sparagamo's dad, who was a famous quarterback for the LA Rams, and he would, again, be so upset that this is what he did for a living, he'd take it out on me. And I couldn't understand it. It's like, why don't you just quit? Why don't you just get a different job? But back then, these things were very important to middle-class America. I mean, we had Kaiser Medical Insurance, and he had a steady check. So this is what he elected to do. So when he had a bad day, like I said, I could come home and literally clean up the entire yard 
and he would find one pile of dog shit that I had neglected or my dog had just relieved himself, and it would be reason to call me out, Lenny, get out of here, what is this? And, of course, want to hit me with a backhand. Well, I want to go into this a little deeper. By the time I was 12, I had now been training long enough that I had such a fierce look in my eye, a lot like my father, to where I hit my fist through the drywall and said, if you ever hit anyone in this house again, I'm going to hit you back. And I literally took control of the household. At 13, I had girls coming in my bedroom window. My mom knew it. But it was part of, again, the dysfunctional world I was living in. Mind you, I want to interject. My parents both believed that raising us in the church, not having alcohol or tobacco in the house, would give us this image of being wholesome. And yet it was so ironic to me because I used to make comment to our pastor, Burl Lindley. You know, my dad all week hates life, and yet he comes here on Sunday and pretends he worships the Lord. It's kind of a hypocritical situation. So I'm sure, like a lot of your listeners, it turned me off to anything called Christianity. But getting back to your point, for years I had despised this person, but yet I had learned from Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, whatever the mind can conceive and the heart believe, you will achieve it. So I've had many, many jobs from literally driving tractor-trailer to breaking legs to working as a bouncer, but becoming a Series 7 stockbroker, I now knew I was going to become a millionaire, which was one of my dreams. That's on my bucket list. I wanted to become an aviator. I became an aviator. And now, having a million-plus dollars, I bought them new cars. I bought them a home, and I was trying to find how to forgive this man and I remember he came into my office at Merrill Lynch, and he literally said, this is overlooking the back bay of Newport Beach in a high-rise executive office. Where did you come from, son? I said, well, I assume it was your sperm. You are my dad. I guess it's because I'm not a coward like you, and I'm not afraid to go for things that look impossible to other people. I had that kind of arrogance. I wanted to make sure you saw my $25,000 gold Rolex. I was driving a slant-nosed Porsche, $130,000 car. My whole world was ego. And I remember telling him, listen carefully now. I said, Dad, Mom, for 48 years, has been putting up with your abuse. And I'm telling you, she right now is going to make you snap, and you're going to end up killing her. I had a vision. I saw all this in a dream. So I plead with you to understand what I'm telling you. My mom had went back to school and became an RN nurse. She was now making more money than he had ever made working at Ford Motor Company, and she was mixing diazepam, Valium, with her Kendall Jackson, and the neighbors were calling me from the house I bought them, saying, your mom's drunk in the backyard naked. I'm like, unbelievable. This is my Sunday school teacher. This is my Cub Scout mom. And she's now a foul-mouthed slut sleeping with the guys in the church, including the neighbor across the street that my dad was aware of. And she must have said something in her intoxication. So he waited for her to go to sleep, and he shot her in the head, shot her in the heart, put the dog in the bathroom, went in his bedroom in his underwear, and blew his head off. Leonard, I'm sorry. I don't know what to say at this stage in the interview. My condolences. I'm so sorry. This is absolutely horrific and tragic. And rest assured for our listeners, there is a message of hope and inspiration in all of this. But before we get to that, Leonard, I must ask you a few very point-blank questions. Go ahead. Were you involved in the drug trade? Yes. Are you an alcoholic or an addict? Yes, both. Are you an ex-con? Yes. I was arrested for securities fraud uh, the same year the demise of my parents. Everything happened to me that year. I literally found myself dealing with a murder-suicide. I was indicted for raising a guy $5 million. I was not only looking at 10 years in federal prison. I had went through a divorce that cost me about $2.5 million. I'm paying $8,500 a month spousal support, and I'm trying to figure out what next, Lord, but I get boils on the bottom of my feet next. 
I mean, is that what comes next? So, yeah, it was amazing. Drinking was part of getting in the gang. When I was 12 years old, I had to learn how to drink because I didn't like it. I remember my Uncle Howard was uh, Navy demolition, and they used to always have slits beers. And I looked at my cousin Howie. I go, I don't even like this. I don't know why they drink these. I remember because I didn't smoke cigarettes, it was very difficult for me to learn how to inhale. So Willie James, when he introduced me to marijuana, again, being 12 years of age, it was like, how do you do this? But I became very talented at drinking and using drugs. Cocaine was something that became very prevalent in the 70s. When I was bodyguarding for Donna Summers, cocaine was prevalent. Uh, it was just amazing. Growing up in the 70s, living in Hollywood, it was what I call Sodom and Gomorrah. Leonard, elaborate, if you will, on smuggling and dealing drugs. I was baptized at 16 years old by Chuck Smith. They called him Papa Chuck. And he was like a hippie here in Southern California. He had a tent. And I'm like, what is this? What is this? And Greg Laurie, who's a very successful pastor right now, currently worth, I think, $3.5 million, was with me when we got baptized together in Cona Del Mar. Ironically, Greg went to the seminary. I went to Hollywood, became a stuntman, became bodyguard, became a maniac. I mean, I was actually going to Bogota three times a year for the Teamsters, smuggling pure cocaine. So I'm supplying all of Hollywood celebrities. I mean, from James Garner to James Colburn, you name it, these guys knew I had pure cocaine that I didn't cut, and I would distribute it in film containers, and I would try to warn these people, now listen, just do a little bit. You don't need a big line because this is pure cocaine. So it's going to literally rock your world. And no offense, I love Jimmy Garner. He's now deceased, most of you know. But he dis disclosed in Playboy that he worked long hours, so he did coke on a regular basis, and he smoked cannabis on a regular basis, just like Steve McQueen, who I used to ride motorcycles with. So I'm not in any way disclosing anything that would taint who they are, because they both, again, openly stated that's who they were, and most of you know Steve McQueen accepted the Lord on his deathbed along with James Garner, so things always seem to work out for people who enjoy life, but, you know, it, it's all about taking the fork in the road. Which way am I going to go? How much pain do I need before I'm going to realize I don't think this is the right way? And, Leonard, during this time that you were leading this corrupt and violent life, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were also training in martial arts. So were the you were a black belt in multiple disciplines. Were the character building aspects of training with these great masters not taking hold? Was there a conflict in your life between what you were learning and how you were behaving, the choices that you were making? I was a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction, taking every wrong direction on the way home. See, in the dojo, I was extremely disciplined. I mean, I, don't, I, I love the discipline. I mean, from bowing in to bowing out to scrubbing the floor, I mean, I had my, my whole demeanor was rigid and extremely focused. But as soon as I'd leave the dojo, and believe it or not, it was pretty common in the 70s for us to go have cocktails, beers together, I'm not even going to tell you how many martial artists use cocaine and drugs, but there was quite a few of us, so we all lived kind of double lives. So it was interesting. I just believe, for me, it was always important to be extremely respectful to my sensei and make him feel comfortable. I always knew that I was told, you know, if you abuse this art, you are being disrespectful. Well, that's why, to me, just like Bob Wall, would always try to make you throw first. Because now we could justify it in our own sick mind as, well, we're now using this as a defense. But we knew darn well what we were doing. And again, most people aren't prepared for the flurry of blows that are going to come their direction. Right. Especially right. from somebody they think has had a few cocktails. It's like, how is this guy capable of... Sure. Well, you, you'd be amazed, but it, it is what it is, and to this day, I believe that forgiveness is so important in my recovery. That's why, to me, I realize that everyone makes their own journey, and the key to stay well, especially in recovery, is to forgive yourself and forgive others. Forgive yourself and forgive others. Leonard, 
So please share with us now the revelation, the realization. At what point did you turn your life around? Well, first and foremost, I want your listeners to know that I still train at 61 years of age. I not only go to the gym three times a week, I still go to the dojo and train with the great Dave Brock. I not only still train with people that I admire greatly, I believe that that's what's helped me so much, is I'm still extremely physically fit and enjoy training. And most people don't believe I'm 61 years of age because I don't look that age and my physical strength as others will say to the younger guys you know it's intimidating what you're able to lift well that's all because of my mindset so i want to say it again to the listeners i encourage those that aren't familiar with napoleon hill think and grow rich to consider rewarding themselves by either getting the book on audio and listening to it but most importantly i'm going to paraphrase Whatever the mind can conceive, the heart believe you will achieve if you don't quit. Winners never quit. Quitters never win. A lot of people think that's, again, from Vince Lombardi, but believe it or not, Napoleon Hill made that clear through his book. This was written in 1933, and my grandma gave this to me in 1964. Now, for a nine-year-old dyslexic kid to be given a book... It was rather anticlimactic, and I thought, Noni, why are you giving me a book? If you read that, Lenny, you will conquer the world because you are a natural-born communicator, and salesmen are the highest-paid profession. I'm like, what? What? But I read it, and to this day, I've given that to many of my students, and they've changed their lives because of it. I pride myself on making people understand. As an aviator, I want to help you create a flight plan. As an addict alcoholic, I was a ship without a rudder. I always ended up on the rocks. I now have a rudder, and I stay very focused, and whatever I want to achieve, I achieve it. I get pictures of it, and I visualize it. Upon awakening, I say out loud, what I plan to achieve. Upon retiring, I say out loud what I'm going to achieve. Your subconscious mind now becomes programmed because of your belief and passion. I stopped drinking seven years ago. On October 15th, 2009, I decided I'm not going to drink anymore. And if I don't drink anymore, I won't get up and smoke cannabis all day. I won't cheat on my wife. I won't screw my friends Okay, I'll actually have integrity, something I never thought of. When I lost my freedom in 1999, I was released on Christmas Eve 2000, and my bunkie was Bruce McNall, the owner of the L.A. Kings. And I remember saying to Bruce, you know, I never knew how expensive freedom was. And when I was doing my federal vacation for securities fraud, I actually started reading a King James Bible with the same passion I've read other books, and it fascinated me that this guy had a tremendous sense of humor. He made people like Paul that used to crucify Christians, and all of a sudden he said, Paul, I really want to use you, so if I have to have a mule start talking to you on the road to Damascus so you listen, I'm going to do that. Peter, another individual that if people get familiar with these two characters, they were rough and tough maniacs. So my God not only has a sense of humor, but my God also told me I'm all about love. These people who make a living selling religion, shame on them. I want you to become someone that helps the untouchable. I want you to help people that are in such darkness that they need someone crazy like you that's been through so much pain that can grab their hand and say, I want you to stay in the light, brother. Nobody's offended, Joseph, when I say stay in the light. Stay in the light. At my Alcohol Anonymous meetings, they know me. Oh, that's Leonard, the six foot five guy that says stay in the light. He's all about stay in the light. This is a guy that used to love to be in the dark. This is a guy that loved to be rowdy and intimidate you and say something to degrade you and put you down. And he now prides himself on building people up. I work in the recovery industry. I'm known as an extreme interventionist. I've had people pull guns on me, bats on me, knives on me. And because I love them, they end up getting in my car and they go to treatment. 
Now I went back to school and got my master's in social work, and I literally help people because I use very unconventional words. See, when you get your master's in social work, you're, learn, you're, you're taught very fancy words to intimidate people, and yet I'd rather use words like, Joseph, brother, I want you to understand, I'm a recovering addict and alcoholic just like you. So I can relate to the pain you're in. And to you, it's impossible to think how you're going to live in this crazy world without using something to give you instant relief. Well, I'm going to teach you by giving you suggestions. Because, see, I hate when people tell me to do things, don't you? So I don't tell people what to do. I offer suggestions. And one of my first suggestions in my office as a primary therapist, I say, Joseph, do me a favor. Would you look in the mirror? See that big mirror right there? Look in that mirror. That's the one causing all your pain, confusion, agony, and grief. Right there. See it? That's you. Now turn around slowly. Look in the mirror. That's who's going to help you. Not these PhDs. Not these other therapists. Not me. I'm going to give you suggestions on how you can, A, forgive yourself. You have to forgive your. Oh, you don't understand, Leonard. I stole my mom's ring. I this. I that. Listen, I'm the type that steal your wallet and help you look for it, brother. You're talking to the right person here. I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart. If you form a relationship with a higher power, whatever it may be, as long as it's not Jack Daniels, you will have a chance. Now, if your higher power is the same as mine, which is Yahweh, Yeshua, God with us. He will remove the obsession just like he did for me, and you'll no longer even think about getting up in the morning and opening up a Heineken, and then another Heineken, and another Heineken, and now we've got to get the bong out and start taking some rips, because I don't know about you, Joseph, but I used to love cannabis. It made the rowdy one mellow. Well, it was all a lie. It was a complete lie. I don't need anything other than getting on my knees in the morning. I light a candle. I stay in my knees till I feel the presence of my loving God, and he reassures me. Today, my brother, you're going to go out, and you're going to help some poor people that are lost in the dark. And by your love and compassion, they're going to feel it, and they're going to want to know, what are you on? And you're going to tell them, I'm on the light of love. And no one's offended by the light of love. If I now made the mistake of saying something like, Jesus Christ, oh, you're one of those. You're one of those. You want me to go to church. You want me to give you money. And see, that's the way I used to look at it. And let's face it, listeners, most people that go to church are hypocrites. I mean, I see them honking their horns at each other, leaving the parking lot, for goodness sakes. So let's realize this. The God that's real is one that's in you 24-7. And your spirit has to change when you really get the spirit. And people will say, wow. Leonard, I appreciate your courage and your candor sharing all of this with us and being so open. As I understand it, you've shared your philosophies and your experiences with world champion martial artists. How do they respond to your story? Bob Wall and Mike Stone, these two men I admire greatly. They both, every time they break bread with me, will remind me, you know how much your latest book has literally changed my whole outlook on life? And these are men that are grateful. I mean, Mike Stone's a great philosopher. I mean, I'll never forget when I was inducted into the uh, United Martial Arts for Christ Hall of Fame this year with not only Benedict and John Atividad and numerous others, Dave Brock, but it was fascinating that Pennington says to me, you know, I know you're real tight with Mike Stone. Uh, I didn't think of inviting him because isn't he into, like, Buddhism or isn't he into... I said, you know, it's funny. A lot of people think things about people, but they don't understand. It's an illusion. They assume things. You know, Joseph, I'm going to share with your listeners right now. There's a great book called The Four Agreements, and it's so simple. But The Four Agreements are this. Be impeccable with your word. Be without sin, without hate, and you become an enigma. Number two, don't assume anything. Number three, don't take anything personal. How many times did we used to get into brawls because I took something personal, especially when you're drinking or using? That guy's looking at me. That guy's mad-dogging me. And the last is always do your best. Leonard, your book is called Higher and Higher, and it is available at Amazon. Was writing this book a form of therapy for you? Oh, my gosh, yes. 
Oh, my gosh. For the people in recovery, they know there's 12 steps. Obviously, your fourth step is, again, writing down. Your ninth step is making amends to people. Well, there's so many people I had taken advantage of that I thought, how am I ever going to reach out and touch these people, these different women that I broke their heart? I mean, I was a silver-tongued devil. I mean, I'd slip down beside you and steal her heart while you're sitting there buying her flowers. And then once I had what I wanted, I would, of course, leave. But the book was something that took so much courage. And I want the listeners to hear this. When you read this book, you'll see pictures of me jumping off 105-foot cliffs called suicide. You'll read things that will blow your mind. And thank goodness, not only is my attorney, who saw a lot of these, stating on the first, second page, I've witnessed these events, or I know people firsthand, and this guy was crazy. And when people ask me when I do speaking engagements, what's the scariest thing you ever did? I say writing that book was the scariest thing, because now you know who I really am. I can't BS you anymore. I can't be somebody that I'm not. It's all there. Plus, nobody can say anything about me because it's there. What are you going to say about me? It's in a book. Read the book. But it was it the all scariest there. and most... And I'll tell you this, in closing, I want you to know this from the bottom of my heart. I believe there's 85 reviews on Amazon right now, and I'll read these reviews from people such as Mike Stone, such as Bob Wall, great, John Nativitet. These are champions that have not only read my book and expressed they love me more now for sharing what I've been through and to have this passion to help people find the light of love it, it's something that is so stimulating. It's the greatest high. That's why I called the book Higher and Higher. And it's important I interject this. I was woken up at about 2 in the morning by my God, and he said, call the book Higher and Higher. I go, what are you talking about the book? I just finished one called If My Nikes Could Talk. I got Willie Mays to forward it. I got Jim Brown. I mean, what are you talking about? You want me to do another book? I want you to do a book on your life. Who'd read that, Lord? I'm not a famous athlete. I'm not anybody. People. I want you to write a book about how crazy your life has been, and how you finally figured out what makes you feel good. It's loving people unconditionally, not expecting anything in return, not even a thank you, especially young people. I go to Steve McQueen's famous location, the boys' ranch out here in Chino. I love to talk to those young boys and bring them my book. I go to Terminal Island Penitentiary. I bring, as an author and publisher, I'm allowed to bring my books in and give them to the inmates, and I'll have the head of the Mexican mafia say, Leonard, Today, it's not Terminal Island. Today, it's Love Island. Can you come and love us up? My granddaughter asked me, who lives with me, Zariah, why do you do that, Grandpa? They don't pay you. I said, Zariah, what they give me is more than any money or gold coin. They give me love. I cry in the parking lot when I leave. Most importantly, because I'm able to leave. I don't know about your listeners, but if any of you ever been incarcerated, well, we are brothers and we know that's not fun. It's really not fun when you lose your freedom. So for me, I pride myself on having people understand. If you think things are hard and there is no light and you need something to just like, I need to feel something, I encourage you to read my book, Higher and Higher. And I'd be so honored if you take it upon yourself to maybe put some love on a review because that to me, it's truly what it is. I will cry reading some of these reviews. A, a woman expressed my 17-year-old son was lost on heroin. We had been to numerous treatment centers, and this six-foot-five angel showed up named Leonard. And he worked with my son for weeks, and he's now working as a cadet counselor in Seattle. He's been clean and sober for four years. It's because Leonard loved him up and showed him how to get in the light of love. Leonard, what is your website, and where can we go to get some more information about your book? You can all go to LeonardWayne.com, LeonardWayne.com. My email address is on there. My phone number is on there. I'd love to talk to anyone that's suffering and feels they're not loved. So, again, it's very simple, LeonardWayne.com. That's how you reach me. www.LeonardWayne.com. The book is called Higher and Higher and is available at Amazon. Leonard, thank you so much for your courage and your candor and sharing this time with us. Very inspirational. Much appreciated. Thank you, Brother Joseph. Anytime. It's a pleasure. Stay in the light of love. Roger out. You have been listening to my interview with martial artist and author Leonard Wayne. Hi, I'm Don the Dragon Wilson, and you're listening to Joseph Clark at Martial Arts World Radio. 
Here is a little history lesson on famous martial artist Jackie Chan. Famous martial arts film star Jackie Chan was born in 1954 in the province of Shandong, China. At age seven, his parents moved to Australia to work and enrolled Chan in the Chinese Drama Academy run by Yu Jim Yoon. Chan stayed at this boarding school for 10 years, during which time he learned singing, dancing, acting, kung fu, and acrobatics. Often forced to put in 18-hour days, the students were subjected to grueling physical demands but they learned their lessons well. At age 17, Jackie left the academy and began working as an extra and a stuntman in the Hong Kong film industry. In 1973, he appeared as a stuntman in two films with superstar Bruce Lee. In The Fists of Fury, Lee kicks Chan through a building wall, and in Enter the Dragon, Chan is one of the numerous people Lee fights off. In 1976, the Low Wei Film Company gave Chan his first big break. He starred in The New Fists of Fury, in which Chan was to imitate Bruce Lee, but Chan was not comfortable acting in Bruce Lee's shadow, and the movie was a flop. Lo Wei tried a few more pictures with Chan, but none were successful. Chan was loaned to Seasonal Films in 1978, and he starred in Snake in Eagle's Shadow. The film had a light, humorous tone, and Chan's comedic abilities began to show themselves. The film was a hit in Hong Kong, and shortly after the even more successful Drunken Master was filmed. This film broke all box office records in Hong Kong, and Chan became a huge star. Martial Arts World Radio is distributed worldwide on a network which includes broadcast stations, internet radio stations, podcast platforms, listen-on-demand channels, and social networks. If you would like to add your station to our network affiliates, or if you wish to sponsor the show, please reach out to me by email at producer at mawradio.com. And be sure to check us out at www.mawradio.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube by following Martial Arts World Radio. I'm Joseph Clark. Thank you for tuning in. Martial Arts World Radio is the official radio show and podcast of The Factory, Martial Arts Boxing and Fitness at 450 Matheson Boulevard East, Unit 44, Mississauga, Ontario. Check us out at www.factorygrindgym.com.